there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. We've been talking about confidence in God, and tonight I would like to talk about the enemies of that confidence. It is, if the foundation of confidence is God himself, which I've tried my best to emphasize as clearly as I can, then what is the enemy of that kind of confidence? If the foundation of confidence is God, what is the enemy of our confidence in God? Well, I think that the source goes back to the Garden of Eden when the first sin that re when the first sin that was committed by Adam and Eve revealed the deepest root of malignancy within ourselves, which is a five-letter word, pride. That is the enemy of our, con in, of our confidence in God. The exaltation of self. It began in the Garden of Eden, all of us have carried it on and are guilty. And in Romans 8, 5 to 9, we read this. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Self-confidence, point number one, precludes humility. Self-confidence precludes humility. Jesus gave us a very clear illustration of this in the two men that went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, one a publican. I think we see without any equivocation the distinction between these two men. One had a good self-image and one had a poor one. Do you know which was which? You remember that the Pharisee thanked God that he was not like other men, most of whom have a poor self-image, and he had a very high one. The publican, on the other hand, smote upon his breast and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The second was an honest man who accepted God's estimate of him. 
God's estimate of us is that we are sinners, and he has provided the remedy. A Christian is one who has accepted God's estimate and the remedy, which is the blood of Jesus. We cannot rejoice in God's glory if we are rejoicing in our own. We cannot even be aware or recognize or respond to the glory of God if we are preoccupied with ourselves. As we were singing tonight, my sister-in-law Joyce asked me if I had noticed the clouds out there, and I certainly did. And it was very appropriate that one of the lines of the hymns that we sang this evening, the great hymn by Isaac Watts, I Sing the Glorious Power of God, the line says, And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. Did you notice that line as we sang it? And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. And I don't think that applies solely to literal clouds in the sky. It's the clouds and the tempests in our own lives that arise by order of God's throne. No matter what other source there may be, and I remind you again of Joseph's words in the end of the book of Genesis, when he spoke to his brothers and he said, you didn't send me here, God did. Now remember the wickedness of his brothers. Their motives were thoroughly evil. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to make some money in the process, and they succeeded in doing both. It was wickedness. It was evil. It was sin against Joseph. And he said, it was God that sent me here. So there we have that amazing grace and that wonderful mystery, which none of us will ever satisfactorily explain even to ourselves, let alone to any non-believing challenge that comes to us from our non-believing friends. Well, if you've got such a great God, how come? So and so and so and so. Why does he let these things happen? And we've already mentioned the response of the prophet Isaiah in the presence of God. It was, as someone has put it, a heartbreaking affliction of amazement at his own utter desolation and dereliction. He immediately was aware, a blinding, clear vision of himself. And he said, woe is me. When the old Apostle John was on the island of Patmos in exile, he said in verse 9 of Revelation 1, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I love that expression, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And then... He hears a voice speaking to him, and he turns to see the voice. And when he turned, he saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held 
seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. A revelation of Jesus. And here was a man who had walked and talked with Jesus and had known him intimately and loved him with all his heart. But John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I don't think he had a thought for himself other than, who am I, wretched man, to see such a vision? And then the unutterable love with, with, with which Jesus responded, he placed his right hand, now remember the right hand was the hand that held the seven stars, and he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys. I love that. The hand that held the seven stars laid in mercy and love on John, and he said, I hold the keys. In other words, the man that has the keys is the man that's in charge, and he knows exactly what he's doing. If Isaiah or John or Peter or the publican in the temple had been confident in themselves, there would have been no humility, no genuine recognition of the truth, because humility is nothing more and less than the recognition of the truth. It's just intellectual integrity, isn't it? The revelation of who God is. So, it is so awful and so revelatory of who I am that I can only acknowledge myself to be nothing and nobody and helpless. Another enemy of pride, another enemy of the self, is pride. Now, we really can't separate self-confidence and pride. I think the two things are not quite synonymous, but almost, and usually interchangeable. There has to be a measure, a rather startling measure of pride in anyone who has very great confidence in himself. And I think it was H.L. Mencken, that very acerb, um, acid-tongued man, who said, no man in his right mind thinks very highly of himself. And in our best moments, we certainly would not want anybody else to know what we really are. We wouldn't want to reveal the truth about our self-image. The problem with pride is that it refuses self-surrender. The pride of Adam and Eve was, in effect, saying to God, we belong to ourselves. God had created them for himself, for his glory, and that they might enjoy him forever. It was for their pleasure as well as his. But they thought they had a better idea about how to get their own pleasure, and so they de declared their independence. And they said, in effect, I am my own, my will be done, I'm going to do my own thing. And they did not trust God to do the best for them. They trusted 
themselves. If we trust ourselves, if we have confidence in ourselves, we don't have an inkling of the truth. Paul said, there is no question of our being qualified in ourselves. The qualification comes from God, who has qualified us to dispense his new covenant. That's in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, uh, 3, 5, and 6. In 2 Corinthians 4, 1, and 7, he says, we have been entrusted with a commission, and we owe it entirely to God's mercy. And then he reminds us that we are nothing but clay pots. And I have these verses in the very front of this little notebook that I carry with me everywhere I go, just in order to, before I get up and speak, review who it is that I am. I am nothing but a clay pot. I have these verses from 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the eloquence of men and of angels, but have no love, I am nothing but noise. That love is Calvary love, it's divine love, it doesn't come from me. And I could go on and on, I could read you the two whole pages of these verses that just remind me over and over and over again, I have nothing that I have not received, I am nothing but a clay pot, if I have not love, I am worse than nothing, I am nothing but noise, etc., etc. So these are enemies of confidence, self enemies of confidence in God, self-confidence, pride, a declaration of independence. I read a wonderful little story illustrating how difficult it is to really know ourselves. It's, it's really absurd to think that we know ourselves, because in the 50, more, more than 50 years that I've been trying to walk with the Lord, I realize that there's hardly a day that goes by that the Lord doesn't reveal something else about myself that I didn't know, and something that I don't particularly want to know. I'd be much happier if I didn't know. So it's a process that goes on, and here's a story of a man named Carlo Caretto, who believed that God had told, was telling him to leave everything and come with me into the desert. Jesus said to him, it is not your acts and deeds that I want, but your prayer and your love. And so Coretto said, tired, I sought shade under a rock. I had with me a bag of food, two blankets, a tripod for my fire, and I lay down to take a nap in the heat of the day. I rolled up one blanket and put it under my head and put another by my side. The evening before, I had been in a small village populated by ex-slaves. Old Kada, trembling with cold, came to me, and as I lay down that afternoon, I thought of how I had considered giving him my blanket, but decided that I would need it at night. My skin was not worth more than his, I reasoned. The least can I, that I can do as a little brother of Jesus is to give him my blanket. But as he slept that afternoon, he dreamed that a rock had fallen on him, pinning him helplessly. He asked, how long am I to remain here? And in his dream, Jesus said, till you are capable of an act of perfect love. 
Was I close enough to my master, whose act of perfect love was on Calvary, to follow him to Calvary for the sake of my brother? If I was capable of passing by a brother who was shivering with cold, how should I be capable of dying for him? I understood that day in the desert that I was lost. You will be judged on love, wrote St. John of the Cross. Coretto says, I was not able to deceive myself any longer. The truth is, I did not give Kada my blanket for fear of the cold night. That means that I love my own skin more than my brother's, while God's commandment is, love the life of others as you love your own. Even that belongs, I remembered, to the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor. The New Testament has a far higher standard, love one another as I have loved you. This is not only to give up the blanket, but to give up life itself. Living in our selfishness means stopping at human limits, preventing our transformation into divine love. And the things that we are talking about here this weekend are not natural. We're, talk we're talking about the supernatural. We're not talking about how ordinary people behave or how the world would expect anybody to behave. We're talking about how God asks us and indeed requires us to behave if we claim to be followers of him. Because Jesus tells us that we are to love each other as Christ loved us, which means nothing less than sacrifice. Love always means sacrifice. Now, if we've never had to learn that lesson before, we have to learn it when we have a baby. Anybody that's ever had a baby come into the, into the family knows that it changes everything. It changes your lives forever. Now, the mother, of course, puts her life more or less on the line for the whole nine months before that baby is born. And when the baby is born, she goes down to the very gates of death in order to give life. Out of death comes life, as the life of the seed constantly reminds us. The seed has to fall into the ground and die in order to spring up into fruitfulness. And so the mother, in labor, puts her life on the line for the life of this child. But then that's only the beginning, isn't it? Because then both the father and the mother begin laying down their lives. I can remember my mother saying that she had some vague idea in the back of her mind that once her children were out of the house and perhaps married, that she could sort of cross them off the list having laid down her life for way more than 21 years in view of the fact that she had six children. But there's never a time when God is going to let us off the hook because not only our own children, but our grandchildren and other people's children and brothers and sisters in Christ and brothers and sisters out of Christ and all sorts of other people ask us for sacrifice. Maybe not in so many words. All this by way of saying that there are many enemies to our confidence in God, and the world is constantly reminding us of 
being our own person, being permitted to do our own thing. Uh, you owe it to yourself, but you can't do this for everybody, and you must not become codependent, and on and on. You know all the catchphrases, the buzzwords. And it's interesting to me that um, Fran Schaefer, just shortly before he died, said, tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying about seven years from now. And he was exactly right. We're trotting along about seven years behind whatever the world is doing. And right now there is a rather astonishing backlash to the whole self-esteem movement. Did you know that Newsweek had a whole cover story called The Curse of Self-Esteem? That's where I got some of these choice quotes that I have. Goethe's only God knows who I am, and I hope God never lets me find out. And H.L. Mencken saying, no man in his right mind has very high self-image. And I think it was Mark Twain that said something like, the only time that a man can, ha can feel good about himself is when he doesn't think the rest yet suspect anything. <laughs> so I don't know how long it's going to take the church to realize what absolute nonsense they have bought into, but we need to consider the truth that God has given us. I love this little story of Kata because it was such a revelation to Carlo Coretto that although he had, as it were, given his body to be burned, given up everything, given, his, given up his home, his family, and everything to go into the desert to live with God and to learn to love. And the very first night on his way in there, he had failed to love that shivering brother. It is when we begin to leave self behind, which is one of the translations of Jesus' first condition of discipleship. If you want to be my disciple, you must leave self behind. Deny yourself. Give up your right to yourself. When we begin to leave self behind, that ragged, disreputable, whining, offended, bankrupt self, then we begin to align our wills with Christ's and to will to do his will. Now, society is urging us to think about, to ponder, to coddle, to analyze that ragged, disreputable, whining, offended, bankrupt self. Now, those are not, that's not my description. Somebody else's, and I don't, didn't put down the source in this case, but I do remember very well my old Bible teacher, Ellie Maxwell, who was the founder and the principal of Prairie Bible Institute, which I attended for one year in Canada, and he was a very great Bible teacher and a wonderful example of a real man, a masculine man who made no apologies whatsoever about being a man, but he was a man of true humility and incandescent honesty. And I can remember one time when We'd had one of these long sessions. It was supposed to be a testimony meeting and a prayer meeting, and the kids had a way of make, turning it into a most boring confessional meeting. And they would get up there, and they'd confess all these ridiculous little things that the rest of us didn't need to hear about. And when, all, when Mr. Maxwell would put up with this for a certain length of time, and then finally he stood up one night, and he just yelled into the microphone, Oh, Lord, will you please deliver us from our sad, sweet, stinking selves? <laughs> I never forgot it. Now, what is our norm? 
Is it my idea of myself, and I asked these questions earlier, but I think we need to review them, all these questions about, yes, but what about, and don't you think there's something to be said for building my self-image, and is it a good thing to go through life thinking that we're terrible and all that? We need to ask these questions of ourselves. What, what is the norm? By what standard do I decide whether I have a good image, a wonderful image, a terrible image, a poor image? There has to be some idea of what the self is supposed to be. And most people would take their cues from the world. Whatever the quotation of the day is, okay, that's the standard that I have to measure myself against, and I don't think I've quite reached that, but maybe by next Thursday I can. The image of Christ should be our standard. Now, as I try to align my self-image with the image of Christ, how close have I come? How do I stack up with that? Would I rate myself excellent, good, fair, poor, or terrible? Well, you don't need to answer that to me, and I'm certainly not going to press the point any further, but I, I just think that ought to be enough to convince us that we don't that we are wasting our time and our energy and certainly our spiritual life in concentrating on rummaging around in our emotional entrails and trying to figure out whether we really have a good self-image or not. I hope that some of you know the poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. Francis Thompson was a drunkard and I believe that he actually died of alcoholism but he wrote this magnificent poem describing his fleeing, trying to flee from God. And he pictures God or the Holy Spirit as a hound who hounds him relentlessly as he tries to flee. And he tries everything. He tries finding comfort in nature. He tries finding comfort in a woman's love. He tries finding comfort in the faces of little children. And the joy that he seeks and the peace continually flees from him but behind beat those feet with undisturbed pace, majestic instancy, they follow. And in the end, of course, the hound catches up to him. And he says, human love needs human meriting. Hast thou merited of all man's clotted clay the dingiest clot? Alack, Thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. This is God talking. Who will ever love you except me, except only me? And then these word, words, get these. All which I took from thee, I did but take, not for thy harms, but that thou mightst seek it in my arms. All that I took from thee I took not for thy harms, but that thou mightst seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as, as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise. Clasp my hand and come. Isn't that beautiful? The hound of heaven. And 
there's a wonderful story in one of the Narnia books, I think it's in Prince Caspian, where in the middle of the night, Lucy is awakened by the lion, and she has no question but what she has really seen, Aslan. And Aslan tells her that she must go wake up the others and move out of wherever they are. I've forgotten exactly where the scene is. Well, poor little Lucy, she is convinced that the others will not believe that she has seen the lion, and they're not going to want to be waked up as it is at that hour of the night, and she doesn't think they will go. Three objections. They won't believe I've seen you, they won't like being waked up, and I don't think they will go. And the lion reminds her that she cannot know what might happen. She can only know what she has to do. And he tells her, when you have to do something, don't ask whether you can. She's convinced that she's not going to be able to do these things. He said, never ask whether you can do a thing. If you know God wants you to do it, then you have to do it. Of course, the lion doesn't speak of God. But that is the, the lesson there. Now, is God asking something impossible of you tonight? You cannot be sure of its impossibility until you have flung yourself against the rock in obedience. You cannot know for sure the impossibility until you have flung yourself against the rock in obedience. You must try it. You must have a go at it. Jesus says, be perfect. And we all know we can't do it. But he keeps on saying, perfection is the standard. Be perfect. Why? Because I am perfect. And I will never be settled, I will never be satisfied until you have been conformed to the image of Christ. Now what kind of a father is that? Well, that's just like you fathers. You are thrilled to death when you see that first little boy take that first step. And it is a very stumbling step, and he probably only takes one, and then it's a thud down on his behind. And he gets up and he staggers again, and there you are with all your heart of love encouraging him, come on, come, come to daddy, come to daddy. And he stumbles again and he falls. And you are absolutely thrilled because he takes that step and tries, but he doesn't do a very good job of it. But God is very easy to please, but hard to satisfy. And the father is never going to be satisfied until the child can walk with a strong and manly stride. And God, because he loves us, desires our perfection. Enemies of our confidence in God are all bound up in ourselves. What we sh are sure we ought to do, what we're sure we can't do, what we're sure we cannot measure up to, and the impossibilities, and look at God asking me to do these things. He's always asking us to do impossible things. And you remember the man with the withered hand. God, Jesus told him to do the one and only thing that he knew he could not possibly do, which was to stretch forth his hand. And he made the effort and God enabled it to do it. So, as you think about your self-image and how terrible it is, list all your impossibilities, all your excuses, and then watch the lion look silently into your eyes. And that's what Aslan did to Lucy. And she was giving him these 
three pitiful excuses as to why this was not going to work. She just looked at him, and he was looking silently into her eyes. So the great lesson is that it doesn't make any difference whether my image, self-image is a poor one or a high one. Self itself has got to go. That's the long and the short of it. Self itself has got to go. Deny yourself. Once you get rid of that baggage, now you can take up the cross. There's no way you're going to take up the cross until you've gotten rid of the self. That is an impossible burden. You can't lug both of them. So you get rid of the self first, then you take up the cross, and then start putting one foot in front of the other, following. George MacDonald said, few men have learned that a man is of no value except to God and other men. Few men have learned that a man is of no value except to God and other men. In other words, we're absolutely no use to ourselves and we're no use to God and other men until we've learned that self has got to go. We are of no value. Some of you know the story of Brother Lawrence. He was a young man who wanted to become holy and he felt that the thing to do was to join a monastery and to be given a very humble job and he would learn humility and holiness. So it was a great surprise to him that he was given the humblest job in the monastery, which was to scrub the pots in the kitchen. And it was scrubbing the pots in the kitchen that gave Brother Lawrence the opportunity to learn sanctification. And he wrote a little book, or somebody else put down some of his conversations. I don't think Brother Lawrence ever had time to sit down and write the book, but in talking with Brother Lawrence, these things were put down, and Brother Lawrence had said that in the midst of all the rushing about and the demands from all sides and the things going wrong and things boiling over and the stove running out of wood and everything else, he practiced the presence of God. It was there that he learned peace and constant abiding in Christ. But I've came across his description of his self-image, and of course he didn't exactly call it that several hundred years ago. He said, when we enter upon the spiritual life, which we should consider and examine to the bottom what we are, then we should find ourselves worthy of all contempt and not deserving indeed the name of Christians, subject to all kinds of misery and numberless accidents which trouble us and cause perpetual vicissitudes in our health, our internal and external dispositions. In fact, persons whom God would humble by many pains and labors, as well within as without. After this, we should not wonder that troubles, temptations, oppositions, and contradictions happen to us from men. We ought rather to submit ourselves to them and bear them as long as God pleases, as things highly advantageous to us. The greater the perfection a soul aspires after, the more dependent on divine grace. Henry Scott Holland, more than a hundred years ago, said self-preoccupation, self-broodings, self-interest, self-love, these are reasons why you go jarring against your fellows. Turn your eyes off yourself, look up and out, 
Listen for confidences. Keep your ears open to their calls, your hands alert to serve them. Learn to give and not to take, to drown your own hungry wants in the happiness of lending yourself to fulfill the interests of those nearest and dearest. Look up and out from this cabined, narrow self of yours. You will jar no more, fret no longer, provoke no more. You will find the secret of the meekness and gentleness of Jesus, and fruits of the Spirit will bud and blossom from your life. And I could go on and on with these marvelous gems of wisdom that I have been culling. I just want to make sure that you understand that I'm still talking about the enemies of confidence, but it does come down to that four-letter word, self, doesn't it? God must become everything to us. It is said that St. Francis of Assisi spent one whole night just repeating over and over and over again, my God and my all, my God and my all. What else do you really want? Ask yourself tonight, what do I want more than anything else in the world? I trust that the answer is God. What else matters, really, when it comes right down to it? Does it really matter? What difference does it make? And one of the things that my husband reminds me of every once in a while, if I complain or get upset about some little triviality, he'll say, a week from now, it won't make any difference whatsoever. And my mother often said, in the light of eternity, what does it matter? You know, we, we are so short-sighted and so fearful, and we have many, many enemies to our confidence in God. But if God is not everything to us, then it's to be asked, is he really nothing when it comes to living our ordinary daily lives? A man's awareness of glory, of the glory of God, carries him in a state of bliss over his own, over the precipice of his own nothingness and obscurity. I'll read that again. A man's awareness of the glory of God carries him in a state of bliss over the precipice of his own nothingness and obscurity. The recognition of my utter dependence upon God, and I have never felt more, conf more aware of my own lack of adequacy in meeting the expectations of other people. There just seem to be more and more people that expect more and more of me, and so I become more and more aware that it's quite impossible for me to meet all those expectations, and this gives me confidence in God. The enemy of my confidence in God would be starting to read and believe my own press notices. Then I would be in very big trouble. Only God has the true estimate of who we are. And I strongly suspect that we're going to have some great surprises when Jesus fulfills his word in heaven. The word he gave us saying, the, the first shall be last and the last first. And Jim and I knew an old lady named Mrs. Kershaw. She was in her 70s when she came to work for my mother. I don't remember how in the world my mother found her, but Mrs. Kershaw was a widow 
who lived in a crummy, old, rackety-packety kind of a house. It was a very bleak house with hardly any furniture in it. She had one loser of a son. He was really a throwaway who did nothing for his mother, hardly ever came to see her, paid no attention to her. And here was this stone-deaf lady that lived in this big old house all by herself. And one of us would have to drive over and pick her up every morning and take her back every evening. And when we went in the morning, there'd be a little card on the front door that said, come in, I am home. Now, anybody in the world could have walked in. We had to walk through the house and find her. And she was usually sitting very quietly in her little rocking chair, just waiting for whoever was going to pick her up, and I would tap her on her shoulder, and she'd look up with this seraphic smile on her face, just the light of heaven. And because she had she was had been deaf probably for 50 years, she couldn't hear her own voice, so she had a very strange voice, and she'd look up and she'd say, Oh, it's the daughter. <laughs> now, for some reason, my sister was always Ginny, but I was always the daughter. Oh, it's the daughter. And she would get up as fast as she could, and she would get her black umbrella and her black purse and her black coat and put on her black hat. She'd come hobbling out to the car, and she'd get into the car, and it could be pouring rain, and she'd say, oh, it's such a nice day. It gives the folks a chance to do what they want. It didn't make any difference what the weather was like. She'd come to our house, and she was just all smiles. And she washed dishes and she would make applesauce by the gallon and she would make do dozens of brown sugar cookies and she would go, go upstairs and do the one thing that none of us kids ever wanted to do if we could possibly get out of it and that was to talk to our step-grandmother who was a miserable, lonely soul who lived upstairs in the second floor and she never had anything nice or encouraging to say to anybody. She just was feeling terribly sorry for herself and she was deaf so you can imagine the conversations between these two old ladies. <laughs> And Mrs. Kershaw never got tired of going up there and comforting Nana and just talking to her and smiling and sitting there peeling her apples or sewing or whatever she had to do. And all day long she was just at our orders. She was there to make us happy. She had no other object in life. And when we were happy, she was happy. And one day when my mother went out, for the whole day, she left a list of things for Mrs. Kershaw to do, and Mrs. Kershaw kept a list of everything that she had done. Well, she had put down everything that Mother had put on her list, but in between, she had put up, she had put down, talk to Nana, talk to Nana, pray for all, and then make the applesauce, make the cookies, talk to Nana, do the ironing, pray for all. And she would pray for this whole family. I think she's going to be so far ahead of the rest of us. I just think of her as one of the meek who will inherit the earth. What is the source of our stress, depression, anger, thank God it's Friday attitude, blue Monday, I've had it with this guy, nobody appreciates me, I have been misunderstood, I've been victimized. This and this and this was done to me. What is the source of all that? It's imagining that we are our own, that we have to run our own lives, we have to take charge of ourselves, we have to be empowered. It is a declaration of independence. But we were made to be dependent on God. We were made to learn to surrender, to give everything to Jesus, all of it, 
all that I am, all that I have, all that I do, and all that I suffer, yes, all that I suffer is meant to be an offering to Jesus Christ. I get down on my knees and say, Lord, here's something I can't handle. I offer it to you. And of course, my attitude is immediately that of Andrew when he saw that pitiful little lunch, five loaves and two fishes, and he said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? What in the world are you going to do with this? And I think, what in the world is Jesus going to do with my sufferings, with my anger, with my bitterness, with my jealousy? What can he do with that? And he says, it's none of your business what I can do with it. Your business is give it to me. Just give it to me. Give it to Jesus. Will we get rid of the enemies of our confidence in God and trust him? Let's say together the chorus of that old gospel song. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Good night. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>